0: Let's turn together to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, our text this morning, begins in verse 22 and goes to the end of the chapter. This is our last time in John's gospel in 2021. Um, Starting next Sunday, we'll be beginning a Christmas in series, as you know, I like to do this as in the run up to Christmas Day, is to look at a, a particular place in the Bible to see how that place in the Bible points us to Christmas. This year it's Christmas in the Minor Prophets, and so next week Parker Tennant will be kicking the series off by looking at a passage in uh, Haggai chapter 2, uh, but we'll also look at passages in Zechariah, Zephaniah. Micah um, and then finally in Amos and we'll see how each place in the Bible points us to Jesus to his coming and to his work Um, and I trust you know the, the entire Bible witnesses to Jesus and so Christmas is a great time to see that and we'll do that next starting next week but this morning we come and we finish this chapter that began with the story of Nicodemus coming to Jesus by night and ends with John the Baptist moving off the scene and what we'll find is John the Baptist's re- incredible humility uh, really as a, a model for us as he says that Jesus must increase even as he decreases. How does that happen? How is that possible to, to speak of that, 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 that Jesus must increase, that he must get bigger and we must get smaller? Well, this passage tells us how, but only, we'll only be able to see it and understand it if the Holy Spirit helps us. Let's ask him for his help. Would you pray with me, please? Almighty God, we do bless you that you give us the very words of God in Holy Scripture. And we pray now, Lord, that you would speak in and through your word. Holy Spirit, we pray, come. Open our eyes of faith that we might see glorious riches in this portion of your gospel. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, John chapter 3, beginning of verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John was also baptizing at Enah near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for it. John had not yet been put in prison. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification, and they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. And has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So if you were to venture up into my office, uh, up on the third floor, one of the things you will undoubtedly notice is a shrine uh, at the top of the bookcases, to the greatest baseball team in baseball history, or at least in the National League, the 11-time World Series champions, the St. Louis Cardinals. Sorry, Braves fan, we are the best. And in the midst of that St. Louis Cardinal shrine, there's, there's a lot of cool stuff. Some of the stuff that I've gotten, uh, some that's been given to me, i, I I've got a hat signed by the Hall of Famer Red Shandies and a, a picture that's been signed by Bob Gibson. And I've got a ball from my favorite cart, recent Cardinal, Scott Rowland, and a picture signed by Albert Pujols. But in the midst of it all, the coolest thing I've got is a 1958 All-Star card signed by Stan the Man Musial. Uh, one of the things you learn when you're in St. Louis for any length of time is that Stan is, even though he's, he's passed away, he still is the man. And I'll never forget the day that I, that I actually had the opportunity to meet Stan the Man Usual, uh, I was sitting at a restaurant with my friend Clay Smith, uh, and I had my back to the door, um, and Clay was facing the door. He could see it was coming in and coming out. And we were talking, and then all of a sudden, he stops mid-sentence, and he says, Here comes the man. And I'm like, what? And then all of a sudden, around our table, around the corner, comes Stan the Man Musial with an entourage. And they end up sitting at this booth two seats down from where we were sitting. Now, it was really hard for me to play it cool because all I really wanted to do was gawk at Stan Musial. Um, But I played it cool, and we continued our conversation. As we were getting up to leave, I was putting on my coat, uh, and I had this Louisville Slugger jacket that I bought when we lived in Louisville. Um, And so I was putting it on. And one of Stan's friends says, hey, you know who's one of the greatest to ever swing one of those Louisville Slugger bats? I said, well, duh, Stan the man. He says, well, you know who this is, don't you? I said, well, duh, it's Stan the man. He says, well, do you want to meet him? Hey, Stan, meet one of your fans. And Stan Musial turns around, whips around, and he looks at me. He's 85 years old at this point. He says, hey, kid. And he puts out his fist for a fist bump. And so I fist bumped with Stan the man Musial. And I didn't wash my hand for a week. Uh, now, St. Louis, even though he's passed away, stands still, still the man. And, and really not just because of what he did on the baseball field. I mean, he was involved in all kinds of charitable endeavors. Uh, and to this day, when you go to uh, Bush Stadium, there outside gate three, is a statue to say, unusual baseball's perfect night. He was the man in St. Louis. I've often wondered what it would be like to be the man. You know, to, to be like unusual, usual, to, to have everyone know who you were, and to be, to be a fan of sorts. I, I think that's probably native to us, isn't it? To want to be the man, to want to have everyone know who we are. It, it's a difficult thing when you realize that's not likely to happen, isn't it? I mean, we work in our work, in our jobs, in, in the workplace, and we work to try to get to a particular place or a particular station, or we, we may not make it there, or we might actually achieve our, our career goals, and we discover, lo and behold, that they really don't satisfy us. Or we, we try to pursue this particular thing, this particular desire, uh, this particular opportunity, and we, we realize that we, we can't really make it there, that, that we really aren't going to be the man, Uh, How do we end up embracing that reality? How do we end up coming to the place where it's really not about our power and prestige and our prominence, our privilege? It's really not what's going to satisfy us. How do we come to the place of humility? How in the world could we ever be like John the Baptist? I mean, what he says here is remarkable. When he says of Jesus, he must increase, but I must decrease. I'm not the man. That's what he says. He says. How do we ever get to the place where we can, in humility, let go of our, of our opportunities, of our power, let it go in order to serve the other in humility and gentleness and patience, forbearance? How do we do that? How do we come to this place? Well, John the Baptist, I think, here points us in that direction. But the scene opens by, by, by giving us an example of, of what our reality is. Because when others become the man... When others ascend and get those opportunities that we think we deserve or the things we've been working for, what's our native response? Well, we become resentful, don't we? We become just as resentful as John's disciples are at the beginning of this passage. Now, the passage opens by orienting us to what's going on. Jesus has just finished a conversation with Nicodemus. In verse 22, what you find, after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside. We're not exactly sure where they've ended up, but we know they've ended up somewhere near where there is some water. We know that because they're baptizing. Um, the implication of verse twenty-two, and you see it there, I trust in your Bibles, is that Jesus is baptizing. But but if you were to look ahead to chapter four, verse two, uh, John will clarify Jesus isn't actually the one baptizing; actually, his disciples are. And so his disciples are baptizing, and his disciples are baptizing at the same time that John the Baptist is still baptizing. And because all of this baptism is going on, it raises some questions for the local Judeans. One of them comes to one of John's followers, one of his disciples, and asks a question, apparently, about John's baptism, how it relates to purification, what is it, how, how does that relate to what Jesus is doing we think that's the question that's been asked because of verse 26. They come to John, these disciples, these followers, and they say, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, the one to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. Now, this comment that his disciples make as they've received this question from this Judean, what does it tell you? It tells you they're, tells you they're very anxious. They, they recognize that John the Baptist bore witness to Jesus. They, they recognize that, that he said this is really the Messiah. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But they're actually resentful that Jesus is actually stepping to center stage. They're resentful that Jesus is, in fact, the one who's increasing while the rabbi they're following, the teacher they're following, he's fading to black. This, this resentful observation, this envious comment, uh, to put it in contemporary terms, they're actually saying, Teacher, you're losing market share. Teacher, you're being deplatformed for someone else. Teacher, another one's passing you by on the fast track. He got the promotion instead of you. Teacher, even though you said he's important, we are worried you're not going to be the man anymore. You see, underlying what they're, what they're saying to John, this observation, there's a kind of resentment. Because if, if, if he's being bypassed, perhaps so might they. Maybe they didn't pay attention to John's witness. Whatever may be the case, their their resentful comment, their envious observation, it draws forth from John a statement of his resolve. I mean, what we hear from John, starting in verse 27, demonstrates his resolution and his own deep sense of relationship to Jesus. We hear his resolve, we hear his resolution when he talks about what's been given. Look at verse 27, you see it? He says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. A person can't receive anything unless it's been given from heaven, given from God. Now, there's other places in the Bible that teaches this. Later in John's gospel, we hear Jesus say to the disciples, apart from me, you can do nothing the apostle paul in 1st corinthians chapter 4 verse 7 will say what do you have that you did not receive if then you received it why do you boast as though you did not receive it and yet we forget that don't we we forget that every good gift that we have we didn't really earn i mean to be sure we put forth effort but even the effort even the work that's been given to us by god apart from god's grace towards us his undeserved unmerited favor Apart from God's grace towards us, we couldn't even work, we couldn't even, we couldn't even get up in the morning. His mercies that are fresh every morning, they, they give us new life, every day is a gift. Which means then we are, we are being reminded day by day of what's been given. And ultimately when we're reminded that all that we have is a gift, we don't prize the gift, rather we prize the giver of the gift. Suddenly, the the God who has come to us in Jesus Christ, he's the one who's great in our eyes. Not our abilities. Not what we've achieved. Not even the good things that we have. The good relationships we know. All is a gift. Isn't that important to remember this time of the year? Thursday's Thanksgiving Day. Many of you will be sitting around the table with your children, your grandchildren, your parents, your grandparents. You'll be reflecting on the good gifts that have been given. But as you do and you rejoice in the good gifts, rejoice in the giver of the gift. Rejoice that all that you have has been given to you by a God. There's nothing that you've received that's not been given. Even your very times, if you know difficulty, if you know suffering, if you know challenge, even those times have been given as a gift because there you find God in the midst of your struggle, Christ in the midst of your calamity, That's why we've been taught to sing the gospel song. "My, My times are in thy hands, whatever they may be, pleasing or painful, dark or bright, as best as may seem to thee. Because John understood this, because he understood that our times are in God's hands and all that we have has been given. He was able to articulate a resolve. He said, you yourselves bear me witness. I said, I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. You see, he he recognizes the place he's been given. He's not the promised Messiah. He's able to tell them what my position is, to describe his position as one who bears witness, as one who goes before. John uses this image of a wedding in verse 29. Now, we've already seen a wedding in John's gospel, haven't we? John chapter 2 Jesus is at the wedding at Cana, remember? And he turns water into wine and causes the steward of the feast to say to the bridegroom uh, that you've brought the best wine out here at the end. But here in John chapter 3, we have a different kind of wedding. John describes it. He says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. So John speaks of this wedding and he recognizes that no one comes to the wedding to see the wedding party or to see the best man or as I discovered this summer they don't even come to see the father of the bride. In July when my daughter Liz got married and those back doors opened and we started coming down this aisle and everyone's standing and looking at her it was it was stunning to me to realize they weren't looking at me they were looking at her. And likewise, she wasn't looking at me either. She was giggling all the way down the aisle. She was so excited to get married. But, but she wasn't looking at me either. Who was the bride looking at? She was looking at her bridegroom, now her husband Andrew. Which is exactly the point that John's making here. At a wedding, people don't look at the best man. They don't look at the wedding party. They don't look at the father of the bride. They look at the bride and they look at the groom. Who's the bridegroom, according to John? Well, that would be Jesus. Which then raises the other question, who's, who's the bride? And John here is re, Im, implicitly reflecting upon what the Old Testament speaks of over and again, namely God's people are the bride. John's whole position, his whole purpose, his resolve was to point God's people to their speci- special status in relationship to the God who's come to them in Jesus Christ. Namely, that Jesus, the bridegroom, loves his people and sings with joy over them. Uh, for example, in Isaiah chapter 62, verse 4, Isaiah said, You shall no, lo- no more be termed forsaken, and your land sh- shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, my delight is in her. The Hebrew word is Hetzbah, And your land called married, or beulah. For the Lord delights in you and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young uh, woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as, your, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. That's what, jo- that's what John's desiring. He wants the focus to be on the bridegroom, Jesus, and on his people, and especially on the way the bridegroom loves the bride. And his position was to point people to that reality. That was his resolve, that he would remain in his place, a place that had been gifted to him by heaven itself, by God himself. So that's why then Jesus must increase. That's why Christ must fill everyone's vision, because he's the focus of it all. Friends, that's, that's exactly the desire of your pastors here. Your pastors here aren't here to, to make a name for themselves. Your pastors are here to focus your attention on the bridegroom and on on the fact that he delights in you and that Jesus sings over you with great joy. And he, he desires relationship with you and intimacy with you. He wants to know you. He wants you to have a real vital relationship with him. That's the focus and our resolve is that we would be a Jesus church that you would love Jesus more today than yesterday more tomorrow than today that's our great heart's longing and that's why Jesus must increase that's why Jesus must be the focus that was John's resolve now now why does John resolve this why is it that he says he must increase but I must decrease why does why does Jesus why does it make sense for Jesus to fill the focus he gives four reasons why it makes sense to, for him to say Jesus must be the focus he must increase and I must I must not be the man Jesus must be I must fade away four reasons the first is that Jesus is from the above twice in verse 31 John says that he says he who comes from above and he who comes from heaven Of course, we've heard Jesus himself say that, that that no one has descended from heaven except for the one who has ascended to heaven, that he is the one who is heavenly. Now, what does that mean? If Jesus is from above, if Jesus is from heaven, what does that mean? It means he's God. God is the one who dwells in the highest heaven. He is the one in the high and lofty place, Isaiah 57 tells us. The one who dwells in heaven is God himself. And so if Jesus is from above, that means Jesus is God. But not only is Jesus from above, Jesus is also above all. Well, that's the obvious implication. If Jesus is from heaven, and if he is in fact God himself, then he is above all. He is the king of the entire world. But not just the king of the entire world. If he's, if he's the king of everything, that means he's the king of you. He's your king. Whether you bow the knee to him or not. You might be a king who executes judgment upon you. But he's still the king. But for those of you who know him, who are in relationship with him, who know that he delights in you and you delight in him, that means then that Jesus is above you. He's from heaven, he's God himself, he's above all. But third, the third reason why Jesus must increase, we must de- decrease, John says, Jesus utters God's words. You see it in verse 32. He bears witness to what he he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. As God himself, Jesus is the word become flesh. He is the word of God. And as the word of God, as the self-expression of God, he speaks the words of God. So that when we hear Jesus' words, we hear God's own voice. To hear Jesus is to hear God himself. So you begin to see why Jesus must increase. Why Jesus must be the focus. That, why that must be our resolve. Why in humility we take a lower place so that Jesus might be famous and exalted. Is because he's from above. He's above all. He utters God's words. And then finally, he's been given all things. That's what John says in verse 35. He says, the father loves the son and has given all things into his hands. Now, we've already heard that God so loved the world, but, but this God who so loved the world, he loves his son especially and particularly. It gives us an understanding of how much love God has for the world if God, God's beloved son, his one and only son, he's willing to sacrifice to give up for the sake of the world. But because the father loves the son, he's given all things into his hand. What does that mean? All things. What's included in all things? Well, the 16th century Lutheran confessional document, the, the solid declaration, it puts it this way, for the ability to give life, to execute all judgment, to possess all power in heaven and on earth, to have all things in his hand, to have everything subjected to him under his feet, or to cleanse people from their sins are not created gifts, but divine, infinite characteristics. And according to the statements of Scripture, they are given to and imparted to the human Christ. Do you hear it? The things that most matter in the world, yes, rule and authority and power and judgment, but also cleansing from sin, salvation itself, they've been given to Jesus. There's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved, save the name of Jesus, as Acts 4 tells us. Which means then, if we're going to actually know uh, what John speaks of, of, of Jesus increasing and of ourselves decreasing, of being willing to step back and not be the man, and not being disappointed when things don't go our way, not being resentful of others as, as, as the place that's been given to them is fulfilled by them. How, how does that happen? For, we have to come to see who Jesus is. And this Jesus whom you know and worship this morning is God himself. Which again is in line with John's own purpose for writing this, isn't it? We've heard it over and again. John 20, verse 31. These things are written to you that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God. And by believing in him, you might have life in his name. John's deep desire for you is that you would know Jesus. And for Jesus to be big In your eyes. In the end, there's only two responses. Only two responses. There's no third way here. Uh, Verse 36 summarizes those responses and really serves not just as a summary of this section, but of the entire third chapter of John's Gospel. Verse 36 Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not believe, excuse me, did not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. There's only two responses. Either we obey the gospel by believing in Jesus or we do not. We reject him. We know that he's God. We know that he's from above. We, we admit that, in fact, he rules all things, that he utters the words of God, that, that all things have been given to him, but we still reject him. We don't believe in him. We don't obey him. We don't rest in him. We don't rely upon him. And if that's you this morning, what John says is true. The wrath of God remains on you. There's a death sentence hanging over you. But for those of you this morning who've, who said, no, this Jesus is my Savior. He's my Lord. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of the living God. He sings over me with joy. I hear his voice. I delight in his words. If that's you this morning, then, then you come again. You come again to Jesus and say, Jesus, I confess there are times I'm resentful. I confess there are times I'm envious of others. I confess there's times I'm jealous of the position and place that others have, the prominence they've been given, the opportunities that they have. I confess it. Lord Jesus, help me. You need to increase in my sight. You need to be all in all before me. Oh, Lord, give me your mind, the mind of Christ, my Savior, so that Christ would be exalted and self would be abased, so that others would see Jesus only, that they wouldn't see the the channel of Jesus Christ. Lord, make that me. Is that your prayer this morning? Is that your resolve this morning? You may have come to the end of the road and you realize you're not the man. It's okay. Come to Jesus. And what you'll find is as a Savior who sings over you with great joy. A Savior who desires a real vital relationship with you. All that's necessary is for you to say, Jesus, may you increase. Granted, I might decrease. Would you pray with me, please? Lord Jesus, we do pray that this would be so, that you would make us a people of humility, of, of having this mind of Christ in us, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself the form of a servant and became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. Lord, may we, may we live out of that reality, live out of that mind that's already ours, Lord, grant us grace to believe in you once again, to trust in you, to rely upon you, to rest upon you, whether for the first time or the thousandth time, to give up all our resentment, all of our envy, all of our jealousy, and to fix our eyes on Jesus only. Lord, grant this, we ask. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.